Recovery Elevator, episode 440. Man, I love my recovery story. I love I love my backstory. I love it because it, it, it shows how much growth I have today. But my recovery story, that's my favorite. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I am so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's episode, we have Kathy. She's 31 years old from Dilworth, Minnesota, and has been clean since June 13th, 2016. Great job, Kathy. Today is going to be a good day. In fact, today has already been a good day. Listeners, we have an exciting new sponsor on the podcast. Go Brewing sent me a sampler pack of their AF beers, and my goodness, I now have a favorite AF beer brand, and it's Go Brewing. Listeners, thank you for supporting our sponsors. And now let's hear from Go Brewing. Thank you to our newest sponsor, Go Brewing. Go Brewing has an amazing lineup of NA beers. Go Brewing has won a gold and silver medal at the prestigious Best of Craft Beer Awards for two of their beers. Their Sunshine State Tropical IPA will definitely be one of my go-tos this summer. You guys know how much I love mango. This beer has hints of mango and peach, and it's super refreshing. Go Brewing brews 100% of their beer in their brewery in Chicagoland. They package everything in-house as well. Every can is pasteurized for maximum freshness, safety, and quality. Everything is crafted from classic ingredients with no added sugar. The end result is a delicious, non-alcoholic beer, naturally lowering carbs and calories. If you are ready to try Go Brewing, save 15% as a listener of the Recovery Elevator podcast by using the code ELEVATOR, plus free shipping on three six-packs or more. Cheers! Let's do a quick check-in before we get started. Today is July 24th. Summer is more than halfway through, at least in my hemisphere. And shout out to my listeners in the Southern Hemisphere. So how is your summer going? How is sobriety going? How is your alcohol-free clock going? How is your life going? Regardless of your answer to all those questions, I want to remind you that you are not alone. We are right here with you every step of the way. We are walking this path with you. Myself, Chris, Odette, Ty, and the entire Recovery Elevator team, we want to say hello. You can do this. We've got your back, and we're with you every step of the way. One more thing before we get started. In the outro of episode 436, Chris had a fantastic line. He said, This is a great corner of the internet, referring to the recovery space. I agree, and here's my take. We've all heard the phrase, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, which holds water in my opinion. So it's not the internet itself that makes this a great corner. I've seen people use the internet for some truly horrible purposes. But on this side of the interwebs, the recovery side, we have people who are seeking harmony. We have people seeking their authentic self. We have people intrinsically asking difficult questions. We have people who are seeking higher levels of consciousness, or at least a consciousness that doesn't involve alcohol. We have people in this space who are grounded enough that can voluntarily choose peace over being right. This is a very small percentage of the world can do this. We have humans who have accepted themselves and therefore can accept others. If you simply hang out in this space long enough, you may find yourself sober, happy, and in love with your current life situation. Sure, it probably won't happen day one, but stick around, keep listening, and let's see where this thing called life goes. Okay, let's get started. The Beatles once sang the song, 
I get by with a little help from my friends. And according to new research out of Duke University, that rings true not only for humans, but for primates too. A recent study of baboons revealed that establishing robust social connections in adulthood is so beneficial to the animals that it can mitigate the consequences of traumatic experiences during their early years of life. Fact. We are not baboons, but share 95%-ish of their DNA. Fact. We are nature. Fact and opinion. As indigenous cultures knew, we can always turn to nature for answers on how to course correct our own species. Let me read a part of that opening statement again. Baboons revealed that establishing robust social connections in adulthood is so beneficial to the animals that it can mitigate the consequences of traumatic experiences during their early years of life. Trauma in 2023. Not linking addiction to trauma would be an oversight. In fact, that's one of my qualms about AA. It basically omits trauma as a contributor to addiction, even though the founding members experienced traumatic childhoods. But in 1935, they didn't know that. But now, baboons are clearing it all up. These baboons have discovered that establishing robust social connections in adulthood can erase the effects of past trauma. There's that word again, connection. In addition, researchers have found that once these connections are made, that baboons are living longer lives. It's like the saying from the King James Apocrypha, a faithful friend is the medicine of life. In fact, the longest running study of all time, the Harvard Happiness Study, also shows that connection with others is the key to a happy life. The baboon study shows these robust connections can potentially be enough to reverse the adverse effects of trauma. Regardless of the hardships they faced in their early years of the baboon life, baboons with strong social bonds added an average of two-point years more of longevity to their lives. Incredible stuff, if you ask me. Do you think we are the only species to experience hardship, loss, and trauma? Would it not be self-centered to believe that we are the only animal on a pathway towards healing, wholeness, and connection? That the rest of nature isn't going through their own shitstorm of problems, nor would they seek a way out of their suffering? Of course not. Baboons have learned that the opposite of whatever inner turmoil that they are facing is connection. May I be bold enough to say that in all of nature, the opposite of the pain that Mother Nature is dishing up is connection. Okay, let's tie this baboon study into sobriety. There's definitely a parallel here with humans and addiction. We, as in humans, have learned and are learning that building connections is key to helping us depart from alcohol. It seems pretty straightforward, but the stigma has us still hiding in closets. Now, a new strong bond with another heartbeat will not undo the past or an addiction, but it does allow the nervous system to do this. It tones down the fight or flight response saying, we're not alone, we are safe, and we've got friends. When we feel connected and safe, the nervous system can then cue chemicals of restoration and wholeness, such as oxytocin, serotonin, and your body sends more oxygen to the cells. When we are connected and we feel it, the nervous system is in balance. We then enter a state of healing, a state of creativity. The body knows it's then safe to digest food and the systems of your body get the green light to operate normally. When we are operating in homeostasis within ourselves and feel supported by our peers, then we can work on creating a life that no longer requires alcohol. Then the two, which is always greater than the one, can co-create an environment that doesn't have alcohol at the centerpiece. I'm planning on covering this more in depth next week, but here is why connection is so important when quitting drinking. 
we first enter into an actual relationship with the molecule alcohol. It's a wonderful courtship at first, but soon we realize that alcohol gives us wings, but then takes away the sky. It backfires. We have to replace the connection we had with alcohol with something else. I look forward to covering this more next week. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's intro. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Kathy. My favorite play is called Dear Evan Hansen. There's a song in it called, Does Anybody Have a Map? The song outlines how nobody knows what they're doing in life and we're all just trying our best, winging it and hoping things go well when we sometimes feel so lost. I love this song. It reminds me that I'm not alone. It reminds me that it's not just me who struggles with decision-making. There's no manual for being a human, no map or key. We have to get to know ourselves and figure out what's best for us. For me, having a therapist has allowed me to raise my awareness and be honest about my shortcomings. I need an outside perspective to see things differently and therapy has provided just that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. Designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Kathy. Kathy, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. All right. It's it's raining. <laughs> We're both in the upper Midwest. Yes. And it's raining. So yeah, it's an all right day. Um, it's raining and there's nothing to do outside. So we're stuck inside. That's why I'm all right. <laughs> I feel you. Before we get started, Kathy, can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? I've been clean since June 13th of 2016. So on the day that we're recording, we're just a little past or like about a week after your yeah. seven year. Happy belated yeah, birthday. Just, thank you. Thank you. It was kind of a big deal. It's the big seven. So that's exciting. Did you do anything to celebrate? We went and did fellowship is basically what we did before it. We, I go to a meeting every Tuesday night. And so beforehand we went to like this little area, it's called the downtown Broadway square. And a bunch of us just hung out and there's like different places you can go eat ice cream or pizza or grab a slushie or a smoothie or whatever. And so a bunch of us just got together and we went and hung out down there. So nice. I love it. Yeah. I like to celebrate those milestones too, whether it's family or friends, but just taking that time to to honor the people who have who have walked with me in this, right? Mm-hmm. I really value my support system um, for the people that I found in recovery. So it's a big deal to have them with me when I do celebrate those things. Uh, before we get into your story, Kathy, can you let us know a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, age, family, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? So where I'm from is always a loaded question. I currently live in Dilworth. I'm enrolled in Malax Lake, Band of Ojibwe. Um, I was born in Minneapolis and I kind of went everywhere in between all of those different places. I currently work at the F5 project doing care coordination. I also just recently received a really cool promotion and uh, I have a new job position title along with the other one that is a community and tribal liaison. And I have five children aging from the I always say that ranging from the ages of five to 18 years old. 
Um, and for fun, honestly, what I do for fun is I hang out with the people that I go to any with. <laughs> That's what I do. We always have tons of events that we do, um, especially in the summer, like summer is prime time. We have like different camp out events, diff- just all kinds of different events that we do. And so that's what I do for fun. Very cool. I love that. You know, and like you said, when you're talking about your birthday, there's just, there's something special about this community and the people that we, that we're walking through this with. You're very fortunate to to have that kind of chosen family group around you. And I love it. Listeners, I just want to say last, oh gosh, when was it? October, November was the first time that, that Kathy and I met. We got a a teaser interview with her when we were at the uh, Recovery Reinvented Conference, which is a a recovery conference hosted by the First Lady of North Dakota. And uh, she was selected to do one of our mini onstage interviews. A lot of that's just because of the amazing work that she's done for herself, also because of the work that she does for F5. And you mentioned that you work for F5. And just could you share with listeners like what, you know, the elevator pitch for like what F5 is and the work that they're doing? Uh, the F5 project does amazing work. So we do a lot of re-entry work for people exiting the prison systems. So I work with that population. And then I also work with a population that self-identifies with mental health, struggling with mental health or s- substance abuse issues. Um, so what we do is we really focus on the main areas of housing, employment, what does a recovery network look like? And we just kind of help them get reacclimated back into society. So I'm their go-to person for whatever they need. That's what I always tell them. I am your go-to person. What do you need? You let me know. I'll help you figure it out. I, I think it's so cool. It's very inspiring. You know, it's uh, when we were at that conference, um, you know, obviously I got to meet Kathy and I got to meet a couple other care coordinators. And I, and I just hadn't, I just didn't realize that, that, that people like you guys existed. And she introduced me to a bunch of people from her team. And it's, there are so many wonderful and amazing people in recovery who are just like out so far outside of themselves, giving back to their community and, and your heart is so evident. The heart of the people that you work with is is so evident. And it's, I think, I just think it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'm going to stop gushing about how amazing all of you are <laughs> so we can hear your story. And it's, I mean, it's all just going to come, come to full circle as to like why you're doing the work that you're doing and, and, and how you're able to do it so well. Um, okay. So with that, uh, let's get into your story. Maybe start from the beginning, some childhood stuff, what some early exposure, what got you into substance issues or, and, uh, yeah, let's just walk it forward. Okay. Um, I, so my story, my parents are both, um, alcoholics and addicts. I was raised in the foster care system from the very beginning with periods where I was back with my mom and then back in foster care and then back with my mom. My dad really wasn't a part of my life, um, maybe a little bit when I was eight, but that was just what childhood looked like for me from birth to about, like I said, eight years old. um, I couldn't even tell you how many different foster homes I had been in. When I was with my mom, I dealt with a lot of abuse with her. It was more so verbal and emotional abuse. Um, There was some physical abuse there, but I was the youngest out of, from my mom, I have three brothers and plus myself, and I'm the youngest, I'm the only girl. So I didn't get a lot of that abuse my brothers did. I got the verbal and the emotional. When I went into foster care, it was really tough because that was in the days where there were a lot of foster parents who weren't in it for the right reasons. And so in foster care, I dealt with a lot of abuse too. Um, And that was really tough to have to like be around that at all different angles, especially when that's somewhere you're supposed to feel safe. So my entire childhood, I don't think there was ever a moment where I felt safe. 
So when I was about eight years old, one of the foster homes was asked to adopt me. And that was one of the better foster homes. And I was really excited to finally be adopted. And then um, because I'm an enrolled member, there is this beautiful law out there. And I say that kind of sarcastically, but like it's put in place for a good reason as well, though. So I, it's just my own resentment that I had towards it. But it says where if you are a Native American child, you cannot be adopted by a white home unless there's permission given by um, the judge or your family, which wasn't given. So because of that, I was placed with my dad, whom at that point in time, I never knew who he was. I remember when I first went to live with him, that's probably my second most traumatic memory. The first was being taken from my mom one of the times. And I remember I didn't even know what to call him. I was like, do I call him dad? Do I call him Frank? Do I just say, hey, like I didn't know how to address him. And that was really, really odd for me. Um, but yeah, I lived there for a little bit, su suffered from a lot more abuse. Um, again, when I lived with my dad, I had three older siblings. And again, I was the youngest. So again, I didn't have to deal with as much abuse as my siblings did, but it was still there. So yeah, then eventually I ended up going back with my mom. She won custody of me back and she was doing well for maybe about a year. And that was really awesome to have, you know, my mom there and get to feel what it felt like to have a mom, but it didn't last very long. How old were you at this point? I was about nine, eight or nine. So I didn't live with my dad for even a full year by the time I went back with my mom. So that's a lot of, yeah, that's a lot of bouncing at a, like up to a very young age. Mm -hmm. okay. Yep. I think it was about, I think I was in the one foster home for about a little over two years. And that was the longest placement I had ever had um, until the age of nine when I stayed with my mom. So, yeah. And then what happened is my mom ended up um, using again, pretty heavily. Uh, and at first she started out with just alcohol. She was, she was, a, she was raging alcoholic. And when she would drink is when things got really rough, but at 12 years old, she ended up getting her seventh DUI in the state of Minnesota, which means prison time. Um, so she went to prison when I was 12 years old. And when I was 12 years old, that's when my addiction began. That's where it all started. I started drinking at 12 years old, believe it or not. That's yeah. Amazing. When your mom went away, did you back in the foster system again? Well, so at that time, my mom chose to be with this really amazing man. She got really lucky. We all really got really lucky with him. Um, and I have my stepdad. His name is Rick. Um, I absolutely adore him. He's a huge and major part of my story. The thing about my stepdad, though, is he was raised <laughs> in a healthy environment with a loving set of parents and amazing siblings. And he didn't have any kids of his own. And so he, I don't know how he survived with us because we were just this walking mess of a family uh, with so much dysfunction going on, but he held tight and he did his best to take care of me. He really did. But by that point, I walked all over him. He tried, he tried and it didn't work. So I think I lived with him for about a year until he was like, okay, I can't do this anymore. And he called up one of my old foster parents, the one who was going to adopt me. And I went and lived back with her for about another year and a half until my mom came home. So let's talk about, you know, starting at 12, it's pretty young. We've had, we've had lots of young, young drinkers on the show before. Do you remember back, you know, back then, I'm sure maybe some rebellion and just not wanting to feel things experimentation um you know there's a lot of different reasons that we that we dip our toes into that water in the work that you've done looking back do you do you know like what you were trying to do as you started to experiment i was just trying to have fun i think i didn't realize that what i was doing was numbing emotions i didn't 
I didn't think of it that way. I was just, I was just having a blast. Not only that, but around that time frame, my brothers came home from the homes that they were in. I was always separated from my brothers and they came back and they were like these big macho guys that just like were the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Like they were so badass. Like I just loved them. And so I wanted to follow in their footsteps and that's what they were doing. And they were, you know, all older than I am. I think my closest brother in age is four years older than me. So he was 16. So he was drinking and he looked like everybody loved him. So I wanted to drink and I wanted everybody to love me too. You know, that's, I was really big into fighting at that time too, because of my brothers, they were so like, I wanted to do that too, you know? So that's what it was. I think I was just creating a, an image of myself that I wanted other people to like me and I wanted to have fun. Yeah. Yeah. We can see things in other people and we want to try to assimilate to their behaviors and, and get into the fold. And, uh, one of the things that we, that you and I talked about, uh, when we spent some time together last fall was this idea of identity and, and who we are. And, uh, mm -hmm. one of the things that you had mentioned during our conversations was, you know, going from these, from home to home, just not quite knowing where, where you fit in. You know, you mentioned, mm -hmm. you had mentioned earlier that, you know, that you're a tribal member and some of the families were white families and just kind of having mm -hmm. this, these conflicting feelings of, of who am I and where do I belong? Yeah. Yeah. That was huge. The one story that I think of all the time that is like a core memory of mine that really, really shook me up as a young child up until up until I found recovery, honestly, was I was in a foster home and she didn't mean anything by it. I don't think she meant she didn't have any ill will towards what she was saying. But my foster mom and she would do this. This happened more than once. We would drive up and down Broadway and she would always point out the natives, she would always point them out and she would say, look at those drunk Indians. She would say that, or she'd be like, look at those drunk Indians in the garbage. Look at those homeless drunk Indians. And it was always those drunk Indians. And where I went, that foster home was in a really small town. And so I think it was kindergarten to 12th grade. And there was like 500 kids in the same school. Like it was a super wow. small school and everybody knew I was the foster kid. And I was the only colored child in that school. So it just created so much like anger inside myself. Like I was very shameful, you know, like the kids would run around and they'd be like, oh, blah, 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 and they would do that to me. And then I felt even more disgusted to be Indian. Like that's how I seen it. And I just didn't like myself, you know, when I went to go live with my dad, things like turned around completely. And I went there and like everybody would make fun of me because now I was the white girl because my mom was white and my dad's native. And so I'm half and half. And I was just like, I don't understand why nobody likes me. You know, why can't I just be like you guys are? So it didn't matter if I was white. It didn't matter if I was native, wherever I was, I was the opposite. So, yeah, that's a lot of, you know, a lot of the people that we talk to, you know, we have we have identity struggles with with who we think we are and and who we want to be and and when the outside world is is projecting this stuff onto us one way or another and we just we can't we don't feel like we're a part of and we feel other than everybody else no matter no matter where we go i just know that that can cause a lot of pain internally mm -hmm. and and it's you know of course when we when we get into using substances of course it's like oh okay well hey like i I don't feel that anymore. I don't have to like those emotions, those are feelings. They, they, they numb out. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's keep going forward into your, your upper teen years. Yeah. Um, so my upper teen years, you know, I started drinking at 12, like I said, 
I was already court ordered to go to two AA meetings a week by the time I was 14 years old. (laughs) That was the strangest situation ever because it didn't take long for me to lose control. It did not take long. Started when I was 12 and I, it was like an every weekend kind of thing or whenever I could, cause mom wasn't home. Stepdad didn't know what we were doing. You know, he, I mean, I'm sure he did, but he didn't know how to stop it. And so by the time I was 14, I was already blacking out and <laughs> would wake up and not know what I was doing. And I was doing a lot of other things that, you know, teenagers shouldn't be doing at that age. And so I remember the first meeting I ever went to and I had seen somebody that I knew and they were like, what are you doing here, Mejita? And I was like, like, um, and it was a friend's dad. And so it was, that was really interesting. But, you know, looking back on it, it's really cool because I understood why he never used it against me outside of those rooms. And at that time, I I didn't know why he didn't say something to me when I would go to his house. You know, now I know that there's anonymity there. So there's that. But um, I ended up using, I, I, tr- I transitioned, so I'm a cross addict. I transitioned into um, painkillers by the time I was 16. And I, I kind of stayed steady at that. 16 to 22, that's kind of where I stayed. But I ended up getting pregnant at 16 years old because I went out drinking one night. And, you know, really tough part of that story is I went out drinking that night and I woke up the next day to somebody that I did not know. Mm-hmm. And that is, and that's who, that's who I ended up getting pregnant with, with my first child. So that was interesting, you know? <laughs> yeah, probably not what you had in mind at 16. Mm-mm, no, it was not. How did that, uh, that pregnancy and, and having your first child, how did that uh, impact your life just in general? And then also, uh, you know, did that, did that do anything in terms of your usage? So getting pregnant at 16 was really hard. Um, by that point, my mom was out of prison and she had gone back to drinking but something happened during that time where she stopped. And to this day, she says it's because I, I had gotten pregnant and that's what helped her stop. But at the same time is that's when I was like officially on my own. I no longer had like parental support. Like I did, like when my mom came home, my mom's not a terrible mom. You know, she still did what she could when she could. Um, she just did the best with what she had, which really wasn't much though either, you know, but she still tried. And, uh, but once I turned 16 and I, and I got pregnant, it was like, nope, you're on your own now. And for a while there, I mean, I stopped drinking I stopped doing pills. I was, I was really, really good at being sober and not using, uh, cause I knew I was pregnant and in my head, I was like, well, I'm going to be the mom that I needed. You know, I'm not going to be like my mom. I'm going to do good. My mom drank with all of us, you know, when she was pregnant with us. And so I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be like that. And, uh, I went through my pregnancy and everything was great. I remember I had gotten attacked by a dog when I was pregnant and <laughs> that was terrifying. And I remember they had given me painkillers. And I like didn't take them. And I was so proud of them. I mean, I saved them for after I was pregnant. <laughs> for, for a rainy but, day. <laughs> yes. But I didn't use them while I was pregnant. And I really thought that I was doing something for myself. But the other part of that too is that person that I had gotten pregnant with, I was so ashamed of that story that I didn't tell anybody that. I I didn't tell anybody who I was pregnant by. I didn't want anybody to know. This gentleman was also 10 years older than I was. Um, I was 16. He was 26 when this happened. And so I didn't end up telling him until our son was, I think, six months old. And so I went through all that stuff by myself. And then even after the fact, I, I picked a guy who had like nine other children. And so it even after I told him it was his child, I didn't get a lot of support at that time. So I ended up starting to use again. I think I remember my son was about three months old when I first went out um, to go drink. And so I was 17 at that time. And it was like right away, 
I right away, I went right back to blacking out. Like there was no easy transition back into it. It was like just where it had started. And then I was drinking every weekend. You had seen where it was, you know, before, before your pregnancy, did you have hopes? Did you have hopes that maybe it would, that it would be different, that maybe it would be something that you could control or something that you would Mm -hmm. be able to manage? Yep. I sure did. I had already been in relationships at that point where like my significant other would be like, I'm not going to be with you when you drink. And I was only 17 years old. And I had already been in relationships where like these men were like, no, I don't want to be with you. Like you are crazy. You're out of control. And so of course, like I was like, okay, well, I've had this much time not drinking. Like, I mean, I did it for that long. I should be just fine. Mm -hmm. And, and I was not, I was not just fine. Yeah. The stories we tell ourselves, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, when you went, when you went back out, I think it's important to talk about how we feel because there, a lot of us have had these, these moments where we're like, I got this, I can manage this, I can control. I'm mean, like, things are going to be fine. It's going to be different. And then they're not. What did that do to you? Like internally, like what sort of feelings did that generate about yourself? Up, like upon realizing that like, it's the same, I'm back to the same thing. More shame. It was more shame. Like, why can you not do anything right? You know, I started self-harming at age of seven years old and I I was a cutter. And so like, I always had different emotions inside where it was like, I just can't do anything right. Like you just can't get someone to love you. You just can't get your mom to stay. And I get emotional saying those things, but that's how I felt as a little girl. And so then when it got into the drinking part, I couldn't control that either. I was like, can you not just do anything right? Like, can you just try for once? And it was just more and more shame that just continued to stack up on top of each other. Yeah. And I think a lot of times that eventually we get, we can hit these points where we just resolve that, like, this is it. So this or a lot worse for the rest of my life. I'm never, mm-hmm. I'm never going to be able to do anything. I'm never going to be able to stop this. And we sometimes we just say, screw it. And we mm-hmm. just go full tilt. Yep. And I did, I did do that. Um, I thought that those years were the worst of it. And I had no idea what was coming next. You know, I I lived like that until I was about 22. But um, in that time, I focused more on pills than I did on drinking, um, because I could control pills a lot better than I could control drinking. I didn't black out when I was doing pills. I didn't forget what I was doing when I was on pills. And so I focused a lot more on that. And I didn't drink as often. Um, So there was where I thought like I had some kind of control, you know, and um, When I was 22, I got pregnant again with my second child. And through that time, I did not stop using that time. That time I still continued to use pills. I was able to finesse my doctor and I had them thinking that I was in all this pain. And so I was prescribed pills. And um, in my head, I'm like, well, the doctor prescribed it. So it's fine. It's not a big deal. Like my doctor said it was okay, even though I'm pregnant. So because that I'm fine, even though in the back of my head, I knew I wasn't in enough pain to like have to take pills, you know? And then what would happen is she would give me a prescription of, you know, 60, which should last me through the month taking two a day. Well, then I'm done with them in a week and a half. Mm -hmm. So then what? Then I'm getting sick. Then I'm starting to go through the withdrawal process. And so then I'm looking for pills on the street and that's what was happening. And then I ended up um, getting into some heavier opiates and I uh, went into labor early. And the doctors never confirmed it, but like I myself know that it was because I was using the way that I was. And that's why I went into preterm labor. And so I had my son when I was 30, 30 weeks pregnant, almost 31 weeks pregnant. Um, I had my son 
and he was in the NICU for a while. And I remember they checked his system because that's what they naturally they, they do. They check for drugs, especially in situations like that. And they were like, they came back to me and they were like, um, why did we find methadone in your son's system? And I was like, I don't know. There's no way that methadone would be in his system. Like I used this drug and this is, this is what should be in there. So your tests are probably wrong. And it just got confused with this medication instead. And they were like, no. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I don't know, but they must've believed me because no child protective services ever came at that time. And I, I wish they would have, but that wasn't part of my story. Um, unfortunately I, well, my baby came home and he was healthy. Everything was fine. Um, he was okay. He didn't have any effects from it. He didn't have any withdrawals, which is very, I'm very thankful for too. Um, but I brought him, I brought them, him home, them home. I had two kids at that point. <laughs> and that's when things got worse because that at that point I had gotten pregnant with my best friend. We were best friends for a long time and he ended up falling into deeper drugs while I was pregnant and I lost him. Um, not physically, but spiritually, I just lost him. He wasn't there anymore. He wasn't the person um, that he was before. And that took a really hard hit on me. And so I remember still using pills and uh, there was at one point I tried to quit. I tried to quit at that time. And I was like, you know what? I'm tired of being sick. I'm tired of like waking up every day. Cause I would, I would like wake up and I would go to Walmart and I would steal things and then I would return them. And that's how I would get money to like pay for my addiction, except for that would just pay for me to not get sick. And then I would have to do it again at another store just so I could get my high. And then I would want to do it again later in the evening. And I did this all the time and it was so tiring. Not only did I have to do it for that, but I had to do it to support my kids because I wasn't working. And so it was just this cycle that was so tiring. And I woke up one day and I was like, I'm done. I'm done. And my mom at this point in time, she wasn't a big, she, she wasn't really a big support. She tried. Cause at this point, my mom switched into harder drugs as well. It was no longer alcohol that she was using, but I remember I called her and I was like, can you just help me please? And she said, okay, I'll help you. You go to treatment. I got them. And I went into detox for like a few days, went through the sickness, got out like a week later. And I was like, perfect. We're good. And then I remember my mom came and she picked me up and she, when she opened the car door, I could see she was visibly high. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what the heck? And she's like throwing me a diaper bag and some bottles. And she's like, this is the last time he ate. Here's the keys to the car. Da -da 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 -da. Okay. Bye. Drop me off. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I just got out. And so in my head, I was like, you know what? Nobody else cares about my recovery. Then why should I care? Mm -hmm. And so that is when I went from opiates to heroin. It just like that in my head, that made sense because I was going to make other people hurt. Made no sense. Yeah. <laughs> it made no sense, but that's, that's what I did. That's tough. You know, and just to rewind a little bit, just we, we always say to like, focus on the similarities and not the differences. And I think even if, even if our listeners haven't got into, to harder substances, I mean, it's, you know, like you and I said earlier, <clears throat> before we started recording, like we're all doing the same shit. And if mm -hmm. we look at like the logistics, just the amount of work that we put into protecting these habits and whether it's going to, you know, find ways to make money to, you know, just one that's just maintenance like it's not it's not even the quote-unquote fun stuff yet this is just you know yeah. so like don't feel like shit you know i remember yeah i remember just like for me you know it was it was you know finding booze and like hiding and like 
the amount of work that I go through to to hide it and to stash it mm-hmm. and to like to try to maintain a certain level so that I wasn't uh, so that I wasn't on edge and that it, but I wouldn't go too far and there I mean there's so many versions of that but I think it's all you know if we if we pull back it's all we're just trying to protect this thing you know we develop a relationship with these substances that's it's just fucked up <laughs> an incredibly yeah. fucked up relationship where we just we feel like we need it and we love them and we, and we'll do and we'll go to any ends just so mm-hmm. that we can get what we need and whether that's to lessen or to to like call a physical reaction from you know withdrawals or to try to to get to a place you know to, to try to get to that place that we were one time where yeah. it brought this euphoria and it's it's such an exhausting yeah. and just endless chase exhausting hey that's yeah it is it's exhausting and demoralizing at that some of the things that i would do it's just it was demoralizing yeah yeah we're already struggling not feeling great about ourselves and then you know our moral our moral compass sometimes takes a little bit of a a little bit of a backseat you know and we we have this idea in our mind of like who we are and or who we think we are as a person and our actions are not always in alignment with that and it's yeah it's tough and that and that fuels that need to to numb to numb mm-hmm. something like who we think we are so you had your you know uh you went and got clean came out and just made made the decision right away that all right if no one else gives a shit then i don't give a shit either yeah yeah and that's when things really took a turn um because it was this harsh drug to this harsh drug and what ended up happening is i was no longer able to parent my children the way that they needed to be parented if I ever even did parent them the way that they were supposed to be, uh, because I parented how my mom parented, although I think I was a little bit better, I still had a lot of not good parenting skills that I portrayed onto my children. Um, and that's something that I really like to be honest about nowadays, because I know that there's other people that could be out there and relate. Um, I considered myself an abusive parent not to the extent my mom was, but that's not me justifying. That's me showing that the cycle continues, you know, although I tried to stop it, it was still there, you know? So I ended up losing custody of my kids during that time and foster care came and got them. CRCPS came and got my kids. And then it got even worse. (laughs) I was like, they, you know, even though I was considered an abusive parent, I loved my kids more than anything in this world. I just couldn't love them the way that they needed to be loved because I didn't love myself. I didn't have what I needed. I didn't have the appropriate tools. So, you know, they were taken and luckily they stayed together. They didn't have to go through what I went through. They stayed together. They went to one foster home and the foster home was amazing. To this day, I still have a relationship with them, um, the foster parents. And so they were safe. And, but at that point I was like, I don't have anything left to live for, you know? And during that time too, well, it was right before my kids were taken, I had a suicide attempt. And so shortly after is when my kids were taken, not due to that, it was due to my drug use, but that was a part of my story as well. I went deeper into my addiction and, you know, I still maintained all my visits. I was very proud that I didn't miss my visits. Um, I stayed in contact with them. I was able to talk to them every night. And I remember like being with CPS though, like they didn't, I was so frustrated because they didn't do a lot to help me. I remember one day I was telling the foster or the the social worker, I was like, why do you guys not UA me? And she was like, what? And I said, I want you guys to UA me. And if I don't pass my UAs, don't let me see my kids. And she was so confused. And I was like, I want to get better and nobody's helping me and I can't do it on my own. I need you guys to take away the privileges of me seeing my kids. That will help me. 
And she was like, okay. And I think I had still only got one EUA after that. <laughs> and I passed it. So it's, it didn't really do much, but I wanted different. I wanted more. I wanted to be better for my kids. I just couldn't find it yet. And, you know, during that time, I picked up a couple of charges um, because I ended up in an abusive relationship. I ended up living on the streets. I was, I had nowhere to go. I had no car. This person that I was with made sure I had no contact to the world. So I didn't have a phone. I didn't have like Facebook. I didn't have any way to contact people. So I was very, very secluded. And I ended up getting some, uh, some, some felony charges for receiving stolen property. It was a stolen car. And I ended up in jail for a while. And I remember when I was in jail, I took it so seriously. I went to all the programming. I went to all the meetings. I went to all the stuff and I felt so different. I was like, I'm going to change. Like I'm going to get out of here and things are going to be great. And I ended up staying in there for a, a couple of months. I ended up, I had to do time in North Dakota and then I got extradited to Minnesota and I had a $200 bail when I was in Minnesota. Okay. Um, (laughs) and nobody came and got me. That's where I, that's where my addiction led me. I had nobody there for me or maybe they were there for me, but they were happy that I was in jail and that I was safe. And I wasn't complaining. I was like, you know what? This is fine. The only thing is I didn't talk to my kids the whole time, but this is where my recovery takes a turn. When I was in there and excuse me, I'll still get emotional over it. Um, while I was in there, my best friend, my sister, she was like everything. She ended up passing away. Uh, she died by suicide. And that's what hit me hard. Um, yeah. I ended up getting bailed out after that because I called my stepdad. I had a lot of pride. I would not call him unless I needed him to. And when I got that news when I was in jail, that was that was worth asking. So I got out and I just continued to use. <laughs> I used within 20 minutes of getting out of jail. And I, and I promise you, I, that was when I was going to stop. I was done and I was going to stay sober for her. I wasn't going to use for her, but the pain was so unbearable. I used right away. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, you know, and and I've said the same thing talking about, talking about my childhood that like, I believe my parents did the best they could with what they had. And it, and a lot of times it, it wasn't much. And in turn, you know, I think Hopefully there'll be a more positive light on it, but I think my kids will say the same thing. Your kids may say it as well, that we did the best we could with what we had. And I think, you know, we did, maybe we didn't have a, a lot to begin with, but, but I know in your, in your story that, that you did find something and, uh, I'm really sorry about, about this loss that you had. That's, I mean, there's, there's no words. It's just, it's terrible to lose someone that, that we care about. And especially I imagine there's gotta be something see seeing ourselves in them and just wondering is is this the road for us like is this is this what's next mm-hmm. is this is this going to be my story as well yeah yeah you know and um and luckily it wasn't and so when i say that my recovery took a turn it wasn't for the worse i mean it was there for a month or two but what that time showed me is that drugs no longer covered the pain I would use and I would stare at walls and I would cry and I would cry and I would cry. Like I just missed my sister so much. And I remember she was so angry at me for using and she was so mad at me. She was like the only person that was like constantly reaching out, like Kathy, do better. Get your boys home. You're a good mom. You've always been independent. You've always this. And she would talk me up and I would be like, no, I don't care. I don't this. I don't, I was resentful towards her for caring for me, even though I always wanted somebody to care for me. I was mad at her for caring. But when she passed away, those words would not leave my head. And so in recovery, and some people get mad at me for saying this, but in recovery, people always say, you need to do it for yourself. But in my case, that wasn't my story. 
because I didn't like myself. I didn't love myself. How can I do something for myself when I can't stand myself? You know what I mean? People say, do it for your kids. I couldn't do it for them either because in my head, where they were at was better than with, with me. I was abusive. I was mean. I was a drug addict. I was this. I told myself all the terrible things. Where they were at, they were safe. They were loved. They had food. They had shelter. They were okay. So I couldn't do it for my kids either. But for some reason, I was able to do it for my sister because I know that her like dying wish was that I would get better and I would do better. That's what got me into recovery was that right there. That's where I found it. And so with my sister passing, like I I have to find a silver lining. That's just how I am. I find a silver lining in everything that there is. And so with that, I was like, you know what? If my sister's not here anymore and there's anything I can do about it, it's I'm going to change myself. And that's what I did. Yeah, I think we, whatever it is, you know, eventually my recovery turned into, you know, working to for myself and, and doing yep. it for me. But in the beginning, like whatever that motivation is, like whatever is tucking at your heartstrings and pushing you to make that change, lean into it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Don't wait for that. That, you know, the, the self, the self-love, unfortunately, sometimes it takes a little bit of time, but it's, it's mm-hmm. worth, it's worth the work. So yeah, let's talk about the recovery side. I want to make sure that we give, that we give that yes. some time. What, what did that first 90 days, six months look like? How did how, how did you enter this world? Oh man, man. I love my recovery story. I love, I love my backstory. I love it because it, it, it shows how much growth I have today, but my recovery story, that's my favorite. (laughs) I was able to get into an inpatient treatment facility over in Grand Forks, which was a little further away than where I'm at now, about an hour away. Um, and I needed that because I know, I'm a very competitive individual. I will not do something unless I know that I'm going to actually do it. Like, I think that was me being having brothers that did that to me. I just, I have to do what I say I'm going to do. And so I didn't enter recovery before because I wasn't positive that I could do it. I didn't have that footing, but this time I was like, nope, I'm ready. And I remember, (laughs) I remember getting to the treatment facility and I was still out of my mind. I was still high and I got there. And I remember staring at the door and the van dropped me off, left, whatever. And there was this lady outside smoking a cigarette. And uh, she seen me just staring at the door. Like it was like probably like a movie scene. Like I'm just staring at it. And I was like, oh my gosh, once I walk through that door, it's a threshold. And once I walk over, I cannot come back. And so I was so scared to step through those doors. And this lady comes up and she says, it's scary, isn't it? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, just go through the doors. That's all you have to do. And I was like... So I did it. I walked through the doors. I found out later that was one of the drug counselors. <laughs> um, but no, I went in there. And the biggest part that of my recovery now too is finding my way back to my spirituality. The first day I walked in or the, yeah, it was the first day that I was there. I was being walked to my room and I could hear a drum and I was so confused. I was like, what is that? And they were like, oh, that's a drum ceremony. And I was like, what do you mean drum ceremony? And they, I was like, you guys have drum here? And they were like, yeah. And I'm like, can I go? And they said, yeah. And I was like, okay. So I go drop my stuff off in my room and I go in there. And there is something about that drum that that it, it woke up my spirit. I, I was awake. They came and they smudged me down and I could feel like the heat hit my spirit. It's just, it was so beautiful. And, um, and that's where things took off for me. That treatment facility, I got, you know, I listened in the classes. I listened to what the CD 
um, counselors had to say. I listened to my peers who had more recovery than I did. I went to these ceremonies. I got to learn some of my language. I got to learn how to pray. Um, I learned about all different kinds of things and I took off with it. There was a ceremony. They had a guy come in and do some ceremonies in there. And I went to those too. And I just, I got to learn about intergenerational trauma and how what happened to my ancestors affects me today and how parenting, the way I was parented, um, how that paved the way for my parenting. And so it took a lot of guilt off, not guilt. It took a lot of shame off of me. Mm -hmm. Shame and guilt are different. Shame is where where you're stuck. You're stuck at the same place, feeling gross about yourself. And guilt is like, makes you want to do better, you know? And so that's where things changed for me. And I realized I wasn't a bad parent. I was a good parent and I did love my kids. Um, You know, I got out and I went to a halfway house near home because I wasn't ready yet. They wanted me to go home. And I said, nope, (laughs) if you guys want me to be successful, I'm not going home. He put me in a halfway house and they did. They listened to me and I went to a halfway house and I stayed there for a few months. And so by the time I got out, I had six months clean and then I got pregnant. (laughs) Um, But it was fine. It was fine. I got pregnant and I I was pregnant with my third child, although I was scared. I I hid it from social services because I thought that they were going to I don't know what I thought. I was just scared. But yeah, I ended up getting into my own place eventually. And within months, my kids came home. (laughs) I had my babies back. That's amazing. You know, we have these moments that Paul likes to, I've I've heard Paul reference them as, as conduits. And it's these, these openings in our life where we have these, these windows. And I'm, you know, obviously it was an incredible tragedy. You know, what, what happened to your sister, but like, what a, what a blessing that that things aligned and that and that you listened to your soul and and that you took those steps. Mm-hmm. What a what a life it's giving you now. Yeah. All right. So you just you outlined you know the, that first about year or so of your recovery. Let's let's talk about what you're doing today and, and yeah. what, the, what the last couple of years have looked like and and what led you to that and and what you, how you've been able to impact impact your community. Yeah, I don't even know where I begin. I think when I first started to really make changes in myself that helped me help others was when I learned of my nieces being in foster care. That's a that's a huge um, thing for me um, because I had been in foster care. My kids had been in foster care. Well, here I am learned that my nieces were in foster care. And I was like, no, it had always been a lifelong when I was. <laughs> I've told you this before, and I'm going to tell these guys now, when I was seven years old, if you were going to ask me what I was going to be when I grew up, I was going to be a social worker and I was going to do foster care. And so I started going to school for social work (laughs) and I was able to get my license to do kinship foster care. And I took in my nieces. And that's when I realized I had the ability to make a difference, you know, because my girls, they were in foster care their whole lives and they, they were older than I was. And they had spent more time in foster care than I had. Cause when I got them, they were 12 and 14 and they had spent most of their life in foster care. So that's when I realized I was able to make a difference and they came home and now they have a house, they have a home of their own and I've adopted them, you know, and they're my kids, they're mine now. (laughs) Those are my girls. And it's just been a beautiful thing. You know, it was uh, a little bit after that, I was working at this one job doing some training stuff and whatever. I ended up losing that job over COVID And I really started to ask myself, like, what do you want to do with your life? Like, yes, you're in school right now. It's going to take a while for you to graduate. So like, what do you want to do? And that's when I came to the understanding that when you do work, you can't just work a job. It cannot be just something because it gives you good money or whatever. You have to find a job that you're passionate about. So I asked myself, what are you passionate about? 
I'm passionate about the recovery community and I'm passionate about giving back to people. I've always been a giver. Give, 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 give. I want to help everybody. And so I found a job where I could do that. (laughs) And that's care coordination. And I had been doing, I've been doing care coordination for about the last three and a half, four years. And I've been with the F5 project for about a year and a half now. And I have never loved a job so much. Like literally that's my job. I go to work every day and like, I don't have a job description. (laughs) Okay. So I might go to work one day and I'm going to be helping somebody fill out applications for housing. I might have them, I might be taking them to a CD assessment to get into treatment. There's days where I am helping them move furniture up three flights of stairs because they have nobody else. Um, There was an individual that had to get himself put into treatment and he had four cats and two or no five, I'm sorry. And three of them were kittens and I had to find them homes that day. (laughs) That was my job for the day. And like, it's just so amazing. The things that I get to do, I never get bored. I never get bored. I have so many people that come from so many different like communities or populations. Like I just, I have so much I'm able to help with. And my favorite part too, is the indigenous community that I get to give back to, because I know what it was like to not know who I was, to not like who I was, to not understand who I was. And when I found the culture, like to me, the answer is always in the culture. And I didn't know that until I knew that. And so what that goes to say is like, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to bring what I knew to other people. I didn't want to force it on anybody, but it was like, I want you to know what I have been able to go through. And if you can relate to it, great. And if you can't, that's fine. You know, and I've been able to do that. And with this new job position, I'll even get to do more of that. And I'm just so excited. And I don't know what that's going to look like yet, but I'm here to, uh, I'm here for the ride. I just, it's what an inspiring what an inspiring story, Kathy. It's just, again, having had the chance to meet you in person and a few members uh, of the team, it's just, it just lights up my heart just to see people so willing and ready to give back. And, and it's easy, like it's easy to for, forget where we've come from and it's easy for, to forget the things that we've been through, but to, to keep that open heart and be like, like, I get it. And, you know, like, okay, I've got, seven years, seven years clean. I'm not helping someone find a cat, you know, like I'm screw that. Like, remember, like, remember your roots. Remember the things that, that you've been through that got you into, you know, that got you into sobriety or recovery, you know, remember the Mm -hmm. things that we've been through. And yeah, I just, I think it's absolutely beautiful to see people so willing to see you so willing just to to help with with anything to give someone else the same shot that was was given to you uh and we need we need more people like you in recovery thank you i do appreciate that i put in a lot of hard work so yeah i appreciate hearing that nice job sister with that the hours screamed by and we are at our rapid fire section (laughs) get ready you're gonna want to buckle up sister these are some hard hitters uh, no, okay. <laughs> I'm bad <our> with you. <laughs> in 30 to 60 seconds, uh, number one, what was your biggest fear as you were thinking about getting clean? <sighs> failing. It was about failing. I was scared I was going to fail. What is a positive that you did not expect in a life of recovery? Was being able to give back my recovery. Every Every hardship I had ever been through had been a lesson in life that I didn't realize I would be able to use to help other people like that uh three what is your favorite ice cream 
cookies, extra Oreos, like extra Oreos. Like I want ice cream with my Oreos. <laughs> you'd fit, you'd fit in out here. Uh, <laughs> what is your plan in recovery moving forward? To keep on giving back. That's what it is. Anywhere, everywhere. I will never stop giving back to my community. And if I do, somebody better come and slap me up a little bit. <laughs> uh, number five, what is your favorite resource in recovery? And this could be a book. It could be an app. It could be a program. It could be a meeting, a podcast, anything. Oh, my favorite resource. It's my NA program. <laughs> my NA program in the sweat lodge. Those are my resources and those have saved my life and my recovery. Nice. Uh, what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are early in recovery or thinking about getting uh, sober? You can train your brain. Your brain can tell you all these different thoughts and all you have to do is think of it as an annoying roommate. Your thoughts are an annoying roommate and you have control over your actions, not that voice inside of your head. You can train your brain to do and be better. And last, but certainly not least, what is your favorite? You might need to ditch the booze or substance if line. Oh, oh no. Um, <laughs> you might need to ditch the booze if Walmart has banned you from stealing too much, but they couldn't prove it. <laughs> but they know you did it. <laughs> they know. They know. <laughs> they just know. Sister, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for sharing your story, for opening your heart to us. And I just, uh, I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing. You're an inspiration. And I, I mean that I really, really do appreciate what you and what everybody in F5 is doing and what everybody in care coordination is doing. Um, when I got a chance to meet so many of, of your peers, uh, last fall, it just really, it, it, it made me look in and be like, what am, what am I doing and, and how can I help? And, and what, what ways can I give back? So I just want to encourage our listeners to, to do the same, ask yourself that question. You know, what can you do? It doesn't, it doesn't have to look the same as what somebody else is doing, but I think it's important to ask that question. What, yeah. what can I do to help someone who's going through what I went through? Yeah. Yeah, seriously. And, and thank you for highlighting my peers because big shout out to the entire F5 project, all the care coordinators, the peer supports, all the higher ups, like every single person in my office does what they can to give back. It's not just me. It's a whole office um, full of amazing individuals that would give the shirts off their back to somebody. I've watched my boss take out his wallet and empty it and give it to somebody who needed it. You know, like I just, I love my coworkers. So yes, do for others, what you want done for yourself, if you were struggling and even after, even if you weren't struggling, just do your best. Yeah. I love it. All right, sister. Thank you. Recovery elevator. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Kathy, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. One of the things we talked about on today's show were Kathy's roles in the recovery world and the way that she and her peers are able to give back again, what a blessing people like this are to the world. Service is something that I try to keep front of mind. In my recovery, some of the best moments have been the ones where I'm not serving myself, but instead doing something for someone else. Giving back has become part of that transformation from the active addict version of myself to the healed version of myself. The word service can have some stereotypes associated with it though. When we hear that we're supposed to do service, do we think that we have to dedicate our whole lives to something else? Are we going to quit our jobs and dig wells in third world countries, 
volunteer at care facilities, or go on a recovery speaking tour to share our experience, strength, and hope. Those are great things, but no, it doesn't have to be that big. Service can absolutely be the little stuff too. And those little things add up. It can be a smile to a stranger as we hold the door for them and tell them to have a great day. It can be going to a support meeting and sharing your journey. Even being at a meeting and holding space for others who are sharing is service work. I don't remember the episode, but years ago, Paul had a guest on the show who talked about going to parking lots and putting carts that were scattered around the parking lot back into the cart corrals. That was his way of dealing with it whenever he felt like drinking. It's not what the act is. It's simply the fact that we're making a choice to do something to make the world a little better. We're acting out of a love for something bigger than ourselves. What's your version of Service RE? What can you do today to contribute to the greater good? Let us know because we'd love to hear what you're up to. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys. Mm -hmm.